You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, I'm Stephanie Halfley, a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I'm here today with Jamie Lemke, also a senior fellow with the Hayek Program, as well as Rosemary Fike, instructor of economics at Texas Christian University and a senior fellow for the Fraser Institute. Uh, I'm glad to have you guys both here with me today. We're going to talk about uh, their research on women's rights. Yeah, First, thanks for having us. Thank you. Great. So first, tell us about your research program and how you got interested in researching these ideas. Jamie, let's start with you. All right, great. Um, so my research agenda has mostly been focused on understanding women's rights in United States history. Um, so that touches a little bit on uh, you know, British history and, and common law institutions as well. Um, but specifically, the changes in those rights and how they've changed over time. So I think of it as primarily a project in social change. Um, so some of the social changes that I've tried to, to understand better are like the changes in law that took away pre-existing legal restrictions on women's economic and personal independence. Um, there are really a lot of those in our history. So I know hopefully we'll be able to get a chance to talk in a little bit more detail about the content of of some of those as we get deeper into the podcast. Um, I've written on the meta-political institutions that facilitated changes in those rights. So that gets to like why this is fundamentally an agenda about social change, because it's trying to understand what are the elements of political and economic systems that are gonna be conducive to expansions in rights, to building societies that are more inclusive and where everybody can fully participate and contribute. Um, other kind of cases that deal with women that I've looked at in the course of this agenda are like trying to understand women's involvement in the provision of local public goods through clubs and other kind of bottom-up governance mechanisms, which was really important because there was um, a time in history where women could not be formally involved in politics and they were prohibited um, you know, of course, from voting, but also from taking most leadership roles in, uh, in political and in many economic institutions. Um, and I'm writing now um, on divorce, so the ability to exit a marriage as being an important component of women's freedom, um, and also the regulation of women's work. Um, so th that's a lot, that, that was the big picture outline, but I just kind of wanted to give a sense of the scope of research that touches on this question about women's economic rights and opportunities um, and kind of how much there is to do. And I've spoken mostly just about United States history. So I know Rosie has done a lot that has a more global perspective and there are so many other issues that come into this when we think about the great diversity of cultures and the different ways that these 
um, institutions that have a gender component have manifest around the world. Great, thanks. Rosie, do you wanna talk a bit about your more global perspective of these ideas? Uh, so mainly with my research, I try to explore the relationship between economic freedom and um, well, women's well-being, essentially. Um, and that first started with trying to figure out how to have a more accurate or inclusive measure of economic freedom, because before um, you know, 2015, uh, our main measures of economic freedom didn't include an adjustment to take into consideration that men and women don't have equal access to certain economic rights. Um, and so I created a gender adjustment uh, to certain uh, key measures of economic freedom. And that has helped me identify areas of the world that at least formally men and women are treated equally versus where there's lots of additional barriers to what women can and cannot do that are not shared uh, by men. So, um, and so I largely find that, you know, there's a pretty positive relationship with between economic freedom and a lot of the outcomes that if we say, you know, we're interested in women's rights, these are a lot of outcomes that, that we care about. Um, so life expectancies are higher, maternal mortality rates are, are much lower. Um, we have higher rates of educational attainment. Um, and so these are pretty robust patterns in, in relationships in the data. Um, lately, I've started to focus a little bit on the interaction between economic freedom, formal economic freedom, and, and how that kind of shows up in our social norms regarding what is the appropriate role for women. Um, and so it does, at least preliminary, seems to be the case that countries that are more free um, are more tolerant of women taking on less traditional roles in society. Um, so, and I think uh, Stephanie and I have actually recently started working on a paper that's more focused on the United States and, and women's access to um, abortion care. And so the, the ways in which um, uh, states can kind of circumvent uh, passing a law and really targeting their regulatory environment so that it's very difficult to open or run uh, an abortion clinic. So, um, so these are these are the issues that I, I'm most interested in. Great, and I think both of you get at something that is interesting and tricky in studying economics, where you have this interaction between informal norms and the formal rules and how they might uh, go along with each other for social change or be in tension. Um, Rosie, I know some of that's been a surprising factor as you've been digging into the research. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, there's um, at least any country, even if they treat men and women equally on paper, uh, there is some bias towards, or there's sort of a male preference when it comes to employment opportunities, educational opportunities, and uh, political leadership opportunities. So even, even in the places where we think there's no additional formal restrictions, um, there are still these informal constraints. And usually when I talk to people about women's rights and how markets can be a really important mean for women to um, improve their lives, um, I do get a lot of pushback 
you know, talking about you know, gender, gender wage gaps and, and why those things might exist. Um, and talking about how in economics, the main conclusion for what kind of drives that gender inequality in the market gets boiled down to the differences in choices that men and women are making. Choices about what to major in in college, choices about what type of career to enter in after that. Um, and so when women or anybody who cares about women's rights hears, oh, it's this gender differences, this inequality is stemming from choices that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way um, because they're like, is it really a choice uh, because of all the other constraints we face? And so I really like thinking about social norms as, as a strong constraint on what people are able to choose and what they're not able to choose. And, and because in economics, we don't often have a lot of conversations about what influences the choices. We kind of say, oh, maybe it's preferences and well, what shapes those preferences? There are social factors that go into it. And so it's at least worth exploring those and, and thinking more about how they might change. And in the work that I've been doing, um, formal restrictions on what women are and are not allowed to do are a very big constraint for changes in social norms, right? If I want to enter into an occupation that's not traditionally one that um, females go into, um, yeah, if I can push boundaries, I can you know, try to challenge those social norms, but if there's legal restrictions on whether or not I am allowed to try to enter into that occupation, well, then I can never really be the trailblazer. I can never really push those boundaries and challenge those norms. And so sometimes those formal restrictions um, can just kind of cement in place those, those norms that we, if we want to see more equality in, in terms of outcomes, those norms need to be able to change and evolve. So that's, I find that very interesting. I think this relationship between norms and formal institutional structures is so important to dive into, especially when we're talking about institutions that have a gender component um, because these gender relationships, the rules that get connected to, to your gender identity, those start in the family. And the family is such a ubiquitous and universal institution. And there are so many places around the world in which roles get defined within the family kind of by that culture and they get enforced by the community, by these cultural conceptions. And then there's this leap that happens where as a society continues to develop more and more formal government institutions, as opposed to um, being you know, governance coming maybe from a more local level, like when we're thinking about a relatively isolated rural community or like a tribal environment, you know, once you start to really formalize and institutionalize, then those norms that were in the family get really baked into formal law. 
And so there's this, both of you know this, but they're, one of my favorite books about women's history is by the great historian Gerda Lerner, who really pioneered the field of women's history or what was one of the really important pioneers. Um, and she wrote this book called The Creation of Patriarchy, where she looks at how strongly connected patriarchy is with militarism and the development of our modern conception of the nation state. So once you get a military and a government that are strong enough to be strict and to be kind of stepping in and really enforcing these laws, it, it makes that kind of change evolution in the norms more difficult. Like you were talking about, Rosie, you can't choose to live your life within your family in different ways if those ways are being controlled and limited by the state. So there is like this feedback mechanism where our norms affect what gets adopted as law, and then the law affects to what extent and in what direction our norms are, are able to change. And I just think some of these issues around gender get so tricky and complicated because so many of these norms that start in the family are like literally ancient. We've had them forever. We were you know, raised by people who had very strong sets of norms surrounding what family and what gender roles should look like. So the question of how these things change, um, you know, it just gets really complicated. Yeah, I think a good way for us to kind of continue to talk about this is to take a step back and ask, um, you know, what is economic freedom for women? What does economic freedom mean for women? And in what ways, has that been constrained and hindered over time? So you've started to bring a couple of those in, but let's let's talk about that a little bit. Jamie, do you want to go? Yeah, sure. Um, I do think, and I think this is a really important question to kind of put explicitly on the table, because I think there's a misconception that economic freedom really just deals with a part of life, maybe a relatively small part, um, but you know, for me, economic freedom, the way I read the, the literature and, you know, a lot of political and institutional theory deals with this question, um, but it really is about being able to be the author of your own story. Um, so F.A. Hayek has this idea of asking whose will are your decisions subject to? Um, and in some situations that might be the will of the people who are running the legislature in your society. You know, you might be subject to the will of a judge when you're following a court order. And so the more that our lives are subject to our own wills, the more that we're kind of in the driver's seat and we're the creative engine. So economic freedom is about women being able to choose where they want to live, being able to choose how they want to spend their time, who they want to spend that time with. Um, and that includes, you know, who they being able to choose who they want to marry, whether or not they want to pursue education, which, which educational path they'd like to pursue, what kind of work they want to pursue. Um, so, you know, all these decisions are ones that have been limited at different points in time and in different places around the world. Um, specifically in the United States tradition, many of these restrictions came in through marriage. So the doctrine of coverture was this legal principle where women 
became legally a part of their husband after they married. So they no longer had this independent identity. They were entirely subsumed kind of by their husband's identity. And so they had to get his permission to make any decisions around um, how money would be spent, whether property would be bought or sold, um, what they were going to dispose through a will, um, any legal actions that need to be taken. These are all taken kind of under the name of the husband and under the choice of the husband. So these are all the, the ways in which this, you know, big mass of women is having to ask permission to write a line in their story. Yeah. Um, and so like these barriers, they, you know, many of them came from the government, but then again, because of that kind of feedback mechanism between the formal and the informal, you know, if women are not allowed to become politicians, why do they need a legal education? So law schools don't accept female students. Yeah. You know, if you're not able to open a business, why do you need the opportunity to develop the, the skill set of an entrepreneur? And so like as late as the 1970s in the United States, there were organizations that were expecting women to quit work once they married that were expecting uh, women to get their husbands to co-sign if they were going to, uh, you know, buy a home or open a credit card, something like that. So, you know, these strong formal restrictions have really, you know, we've been working for a long time to try to work these out of our society. And of course, there are many places around the world where the strong form or an even stronger form of those restrictions, where it's not even tied to marriage, it's just by virtue of being a woman that you can't do these things. You know, that is still the situation for many, many women around the world. Yeah, Rosie, you use the metaphor, I think, of a lifeboat to talk about these ideas. Yeah. So I, I have a similar kind of conception of what economic freedom can provide for, for people in general. Um, I like to think about the James Buchanan quote from Natural and Artifactual Man, that we want freedom to become the people that we want to become, right? I'm paraphrasing the quote because we're talking about women. So I'm gonna make it gender neutral. Um, but I think about a woman who might be in a really unpleasant situation. So maybe you're in a marriage that your husband is not so nice to you. Um, and economic freedom can be, like, I said, like Stephanie said, a life raft. It can be your escape plan. Um, if I have to ask permission, so there's many countries in the world where you either are required by law to obey your husband. And if you disobey your husband, you could be jailed for that. Right? There are severe repercussions for disobeying your husband. Um, so in those countries, if your husband doesn't want you to work, you can't work. Um, and even in some countries where you don't have to obey your husband in, in every aspect, you, there are still some countries that require his permission for you to get a job and work outside of the home. Um, if you're required to gain their permission to open up a bank account, right, um, if you're restricted from your ability to move freely about the country outside of your home without a male relative present, 
right? How do I get out of that situation? How do I get out of that bad marriage if I can't work to save? I can't have a bank account where I can start saving money and I have no ability to to leave on my own. Um, You're stuck, right? So economic freedom is really an important necessary component of, of women's rights. It's, it's a basic human right in, in my view. Yeah. I think that point about the vulnerability that you experience when you are subject to these restrictions is so important. It's like a microcosm of why it is important to constrain political power. Even if you like the guy who's currently in charge. So like, this is an argument we make all the time with large scale political institutions that sure, like maybe dictatorship is not a problem when your best friend is the dictator and she's a really nice person and she really wants to do what's best for everybody. But once you create that set of political institutions that gives all the decision-making authority to one person and that one person kind of has all this control over others, you now have created this fragility in the system where all of a sudden there's this potential for oppression in the future. And these family arrangements where women have to be asking permission to do anything, this is just like millions of little dictatorships (laughs) where we're like, we're deciding politically that we want the family to be run like a dictatorship rather than in a democratic or an egalitarian way where you can pick whatever you want the rules to be, but it's the family themselves that gets to decide what the rules and the roles are rather than like assigning it politically from outside. Yeah, I think that's really important because you have both the severe fragility of that system when it is the dictator who's not benevolent. Um, But even in the situation where you enjoy and like the dictator, that set of options that you really get to express is still so limited. Um, And it makes a lot of sense why, you know, in a time when we are talking about marriage now a lot more in the terms of partnerships, right? Or, you know, kind of equal shares of things and those sorts of things is, is how tricky that still is socially because of this long history and long history that's matched with these legal um, uh, parameters that have been set on, on the role of, of gender. So I think that, you know, in some ways we can think that we've changed a lot over time. And I think we have, and in, in the course of, you know, our lifetimes in particular, we have different relationships and opportunities than generations before us. Uh, but also it makes a lot of sense why it doesn't go as smoothly as we might hope it does too. Every time I, I think that we haven't made much progress on those moments where I get very frustrated, all you have to do is watch uh, television sitcoms from the 1990s, right? It's just, you can look at those gender roles and, and how like, oh, we've come a long way. Um, absolutely. Yeah, just the expectations, the visceral reactions that people have to different family arrangements. I think people are so much more open-minded today. Um, there's been a shift towards the idea that you get to choose your family and all of its components rather than having that be defined for you by what the societal expectations are. So if anything, I, you know, I've been reading the work of the economic sociologist Viviana Zelizer lately for a project that I'm working on. Um, and she talks a lot about what are the ways that the people around you 
enforce the meanings within your most intimate relationships. And so I've been pondering a lot, you know, what are the expectations? What are the kinds of relational and family formation behaviors that would be considered kind of like off limits today? And I think there's been a lot of positive progress in the sense that today, the main thing that people consider to be off limits, like it used to be divorce, like it was a huge bad thing to separate or get divorced. Now people are pretty comfortable with the voluntary choice to dissolve a relationship. Um, you know, it used to be the case that you know, every relationship had to be extremely strictly monogamous. I think that's still a very popular way of forming families, but it's not like the only option on the table anymore. But the thing that's kind of off the table now is family arrangements where one person bullies and dictates the terms to the other. I think that is the thing now that there's almost universally a visceral reaction within our society where we say like, that is not okay. That is not okay to be treated to a partner like that. We expect it to be a more a democratically determined relation. So I, I think that's a very good thing. Yeah. That's pretty, a pretty radical progress in the past uh, several decades. Uh, one thing I think about too is, you know, the extent of the market allows for more space for women to have more time, just like anyone. Uh, but if you don't have those social and legal parameters, those constraints are still harder. So, you know, it wasn't until, you know, the fifties and the sixties that we had, uh, you know, innovations in cookware and more access to clothes that are made rather than uh, the mother having to make clothes for everyone. And so those sorts of innovations that came along allowed women to have a bit more time. And then you also then see probably the, 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 the tension that happens when you have more time and the legal frameworks or the social constructions constrict what you can do with it. And so those interactions seem really, really important when you're thinking about these ideas. Uh, let's talk about how economics in particular, kind of what can economics teach us about women's experiences and uh, women's rights and the evolution of them? Uh, why is studying this through the lens of economics important? Um, who wants to go first for that one? Jamie, go for it. I, yeah, I can start. <laughs> um, so I've been thinking a lot about this question lately. It's something that I often get asked when I talk about my research is, you know, what exactly are the economic components of this analysis? And the way I think about economics is that it's all built around this core of recognizing the ways in which individuals' values get expressed in the world always in the context of the constraints they face and the costs that are associated with making different decisions and following alternative paths. So I think, you know, we throw out the phrase incentives matter. And to me, that's basically what I just said. But I think oftentimes people hear that in a very narrow way where either they're thinking only about financial incentives or they're presuming that when we say that we're talking about a very hyper-rational version of people and the way people think. Um, you don't, I don't think you have to be hyper-rational. Certainly the economic framework does not limit purely to analysis of financial incentives, but it's like, you know, economics gives us this frame where we can understand how it is that if you take a group of people 
and you add a bunch of extra burdens onto them that they need to overcome in order to say like pursue education or open a business. Um, and you know, the economic framework predicts that once you add those burdens on, it's not gonna take very long before all of a sudden that group is less educated, that group is less wealthy, that group owns fewer businesses, that group contains fewer CEOs. So it's like, like the basic principles of economics contain in them this lens that we can understand kind of all of these challenges that women have been experiencing through history um, and not just women. I mean, that's the group we're talking about today, but this is, uh, you know, a frame of analysis that can be applied to any situation in which there is a group that is subject to extraordinary. And by extraordinary, I mean, it's not the ordinary set of costs that a person in that society faces. There's something extra that's being put on that group. So whether that's a, a religious group, a racial group, an ethnic group, um, did I say religion already? I, th I think I did. Um, but, you know, we could, you know, a, a group that's formed around a particular identity, you know, whatever group it is that faces these extra burdens, economics can help us understand how it is that those costs are going to affect their choices. Um, and, and that's why I think it's so important to bring the economic framework into these conversations. And not just any economic framework, but frameworks that really highlight the importance of the institutional context within which we are making these choices. So, yeah. um, so the Austrian framework, um, the new institutional economics, like all of these that put institutions at the heart of the analysis, right? These rules, both formal and informal, they're what shape a lot of costs and benefits of the choices that we make. Um, and so I don't think that you can understand um, inequality of any kind if you're using frameworks that are what, institutionally antiseptic, right? So I think it's not just all of economics, but particularly uh, frameworks that really highlight the importance of the rule structure. Yeah, I, I think that's just so right on, Rosie. And like, so I think a lot about, um, Pete Betke's framing of this issue where he talks about how this axiom of self-interest, so this idea, basically this idea that the, the costs that we experience when we go throughout the world, that these are going to be things we want to try to avoid. So we want to take the, the least cost path to achieving our objectives. And, and so you know, we pursue our interests, but always within you know, these limits that we experience on our choices. And so that, but the axiom of self-interest, it only translates into the invisible hand postulate. So we only get self-interested actors participating in the market. And then that participation becoming this vehicle where they generate good things for the other people in that society that only happens within a particular institutional framework. So if you don't have that clarity around property rights, if you don't have property rights where the, the use and responsibility of a resource are connected to the formal ownership, you know, if you're not in a context where the way that resources and opportunities get allocated are, you know, it, 
where those resources and opportunities are going to go towards the people who can make the most of them. So if you lack those kind of market feedback mechanisms, um, then you're not going to get like women's ambitions being translated into the height of what, the heights of what women can achieve. So in other words, like women's ambitions are going to get dulled and we're not going to really get the full picture of what they're capable of contributing and accomplishing and producing if you don't have that institutional framework. And again, that's like, it's like a core economics lesson, but it's about those principles of economics within an institutional context. Like you need both ingredients or just none of it adds up. None of it makes sense. You really made me think a lot just now about the huge opportunity cost of having an institutional structure that cuts women off of certain choices, right? You said a little bit earlier, you know, why would I ever go to law school if I can't, you know, get into politics? Um, why would I ever get higher education at all if I'm not allowed to run or open a business, pursue my entrepreneurial goals? Um, you know, allowing a more inclusive set of institutions automatically expands the scope of the market, right? That's good for everybody. Yeah. And I think like, you know, to look back on how women studied in the past, right. For people who could afford to, or were able to study, it was to become a good wife. Like, could you, you know, play an instrument where when your husband brings home his work colleagues, you could entertain them. And, you know, it was a very different set of options that they were able to pursue, um, which just changes the way you can think about things. It made me think about, you know, how much of what's going on in the economics of the household has been historically not assessed in a way that it could be how, how we assess the market and how public choice used economics to assess the government and politics as well. Like, you know, how difficult is it for someone to, to talk about how they are a stay-at-home mom, right? Like the language we have for that is justifying the work that they do or, you know, how um, ideas of what's really going on within the home how that contributes to GDP, even though, you know, those are aspects that are necessary. Uh, Rosie, I know you have some feelings on that. Do you want to jump in? Yeah. Um, the whole feminist criticism of GDP really, I think the way that economics and data methods have evolved, it's, it's something that we can, we can and should think a little bit more seriously about fixing. Um, so the feminist critique is that all of that unpaid household labor that women are doing because it's not taking place, you know, through formal paychecks, we don't, it doesn't get tracked. It doesn't get incorporated into our main measure of economic productivity. Um, and so a lot of the contribution just doesn't get counted, but GDP does contain estimations for lots of things, right? Um, GDP includes an imputed value for the household services that you're selling yourself by living in your own home, right? And so there are markets where, you know, we, we hire people to clean our homes. We hire people to cook meals for us all of the time. We send our children to daycare. 
So there's a market for all of the type of labor that goes on within the household because we do outsource it. If we, a lot of us, if we have the ability, we outsource it. Um, so how hard would it really be to impute the value of household labor services? I mean, it seems possible. Um, I don't know if anybody's actually working on that, but it seems like something that's completely feasible and maybe we should start focusing on, you know, how to adjust GDP for more inclusive um, treatment of women. Right. I'm so glad you brought up this issue of housework and of this kind of, there's tension sometimes between um, these economic arguments about it good for being good for women to have full access to the workforce and the fact that so many women still do choose to uh, put motherhood or maintenance of the home kind of at the center of their, and increasingly, you know, men choosing to do this as well. So we're going to have to change the, the language and the way we talk about these things moving forward. But I think sometimes there's a misconception that when you really emphasize the importance of economic freedom and work for women, that you are like denigrating women who choose not to work for a wage or salary in the workforce, but instead choose work that is compensated in other ways or choose to stay at home with their family. And so I, I just kind of want to put it on the table to make it really clear, like the economic method does not prioritize wage labor over other kinds of labor. It prioritizes individuals being in the best position to choose which of their, you know, which path of effort is going to be best compensated for them. So it's about creating the opportunity for women to be making that choice for themselves without undue external pressure from political or cultural institutions. Um, so it, it doesn't kind of prioritize or presume one path or the other, or it doesn't say that like a family where mom works is better than a family where mom doesn't work. Um, so, but I, I think that these, yeah, I, I think people hear it that way sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, there's things about the market as an institution that give us better um, signals and incentives and feedback mechanisms for if we're doing well or not, right? So particularly from the Austrian perspective, this idea of property prices and profit and loss are really driving the market process. And so, you know, they're clearer signals and feedback mechanisms than other institutions. Yeah, it's basically saying if you have access to that market, you get to make an informed choice. Yeah, but we it's not just the household where we have a, a less of access to those signals and mechanisms, right? We have a thriving nonprofit um, sector that, you know, we could talk about the origins of uh, women working in those areas because that's where they could that drove that or, you know, working in government, knowing that, you know, the actions you're doing are having positive impacts is harder to distinguish. And so there's ways that we can look at working within the home. I think using those proxies and using those maybe not as clear cut signals for success and contribution, but that they exist instead of sort of making it 
you know, I think for, for a long time, and I, hopefully this is changing, but like that idea that you had to kind of just justify that you were there or that it was because you, you know, the, the, it becomes imperative about your choice of importance is the family rather than you're also making a contribution. I, I do. When I talk to my students about things like GDP, I do kind of make the connection between, you know, this is what we measure and this is what you know, we as a profession decided is important, isn't it kind of telling that we decided certain things are important and other things are not? Um, and how much of the idea that you have to, you know, justify your choice to be a stay-at-home mom, like how might that be related to what we consider to be productive contributions via the way we measure productive output? Um, so I, I, I do tend to think that it's not the economic framework that does that, but you know the fact that we made a choice as a profession to hold up this benchmark of economic productivity, and like I do think, you know, some of the reasons that you, there might be shame behind being a stay-at-home parent is that it's not counted as productive. Yeah, you know, I I think there are a couple sources of bias that come in there too. So certainly like your classic gender bias could be a component of why we don't look at those things. Um, but also there is a bias in economics, in history and political science towards studying the formal rather than the informal. And so many of women's contributions historically have been in the informal sector or in the household. So these things get deprioritized possibly in part because it's women doing them, but also in significant part because they are not the actions of like great statesmen and leaders. They are the daily actions that take place in homes, in neighborhoods, in communities. And so I think to the extent that all of the social sciences have moved in the direction of acknowledging that we should be in the business of studying daily life, and not just like the grand machinations of war and politics, um, I think has also really helped bring a lot of these things into the conversation. Yeah, I think that's great. So it's getting at sort of what can women's experiences and, and informal experiences bring to these disciplines? How do you see kind of to ask more explicitly, um, how do you see diversity in disciplines in social science impacting the study of of society of these of these issues and I think we can talk about you know gender the diversity of backgrounds methods does that does, are those connected and how do we think about um, this this push for a more diverse set of what we study and how we study so, do you want to start that one Rosie yeah. yeah so I mean just from personal experience right what I, the questions that I'm interested in asking and the answers that I think are, are possible, you know, answers to those questions, all of that's informed by my past experience, right? And so if you have a profession that's dominated primarily by one group and in economics, right? We, we are very guilty of this, that it is a very male dominated, it is a very white dominated field. Um, and so I don't think the lack of exploring some topics that are important to women or minorities, 
I don't think that it's an intentional malicious thing as much as it is I am interested in particular questions because I walked around and looked at the world and these are the things that appear important to me. I'm going to focus on different things than other people purely by virtue of, of my own experiences. Um, and so I think the more diversity we can have in the set of voices that are, are speaking in a, in a particular profession, I think that that helps us think about questions that are important to, to everybody. Um, I often use the example of uh, in cardiology for the longest time, um, if you were trying to think about what are the symptoms of a heart attack, right? You're told, well, I got this, this pain in my chest and I've got this tightness in my left arm. And if that's happening, I need to get to the hospital right away because I'm probably having a heart attack. And for a long time, it was really interesting that they thought, you know, women didn't have heart attacks as frequently as men, but when they did, they died more often than men. And it took diverse voices to enter into that profession to ask the question, well, maybe men and women experience heart attacks differently, right? And so now um, as a woman, when you go to the doctor, it's, you're not watching for the chest pains and the tightness in your left arm. Like it feels more like nausea, upset stomach, right? And that's something that not malicious, but if that's not the way you experience the world, you might ex assume that everybody shares your experience when that's absolutely not the case. Yeah, I mean, and that connects to the history also of so much re medical research being conducted only on male participants in those medical studies and just all these little ways that our kind of expectations about what it's appropriate for men to do and what is appropriate for women to do have wound up shaping our daily life. You know, and we've been talking about mostly women and that that's partially because you know, we're bringing this woman's perspective, you know, and, and I think what you said, Rosie, is absolutely right that if you bring in people who have had a diversity of backgrounds and experiences, you're going to get different questions. You're going to get the consideration of a different set of hypotheses. I think to me, it's so natural to think that way with, a, you know, having a background in Austrian economics, because we have this model of the market that is centered around the primary economic problem being one of trying to figure out how to connect the knowledge of dispersed individuals. So it's like in the, like we all have like this little light and we can see the things that our light shines on, but like it's small and it can only be pointed in one direction. There's this, we have this, these limits that come through the set of eyeglasses we wear. So our subjective perceptions, and they also come from the fact that we have like these little animal brains that can only see so much at one time. And so, you know, the market is trying to solve this problem of, of trying to connect that information in terms of like allocating goods and resources throughout a society. But like, if that's our vision of people and how people's minds work, we have to bring that into markets for science and markets for knowledge as well. So we really want the extent of those markets to be as great as possible, just like we want the extent of markets for trade and good and ser services to be as broad as possible. Um, so I think there's a lot of merit to that argument. It sometimes gets dismissed like 
why what it like an economist is an economist why would a woman economist say anything different than a man economist but like th- that completely i think forgets all these arguments about subjectivity and experience and perception that are so important in the austrian and, and institutional approaches yeah, i like that i also think you know it shouldn't be surprising you know particularly from the economics perspective, that diversity and differences matter because, you know, just like that knowledge uh, challenge that you mentioned, Jamie, but like the whole reason markets are robust is because we have different, we have differences. We have different wants and preferences and I can exchange with you and be better off and you're better off too. Like that's weird if we, you know, if we think about it in that way. And so, you know, this idea that the market only works the way it does because people are so different seems like a quite, it's an easy corollary to think about that for the market of ideas and how, if we really accentuate those differences, that's going to lead to more robust ideas and, and discussion and research and conversation. Um, you know, I think all three of us use different methods too. And so, you know, Rosie, you're, you're measuring and showing you can measure things that maybe haven't been included um, before. Uh, you know, Jamie, a lot of the work you're doing is going into the archives and looking at stuff that people haven't, you know, maybe looked at in year, you know, for a long time. I talk to people on the ground through interviews and field work. And I think, you know, that that diversity of stuff, you know, we're all women. We all have approached our research in different ways. It's not like you have the, you know, but we've all brought something to the table that, you know, maybe others don't. And so I think that kind of, you know, embrace of diversity in that way should be hopefully exciting uh, to have these ideas. Another thing that you made me think of, Stephanie, is that um, not only do we benefit from our differences, we often have the most to gain from exchanging with people who are the most different from us, right? So the biggest gains are when we're talking, when we're, we're exchanging with people who, who are very, very different from us. And so I think that is an interesting, you know, aspect of things too. Yeah. I don't, you know, like, uh, I was at a seminar a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about this and the idea of, you know, say a person in the United States trading with a Canadian, there's a lot of shared norms and, social things like you could imagine like that's pretty easy but you might need you get innovation across that space in the same way where you know potentially what you have to gain and learn and get access to from somebody in the middle east is very different and so you have that kind of ability to do that too uh you both have you know we're talking about economics how the traditional view is how we think about these things we've we've brought in the kind of nuance and and messiness of studying humans and studying humans with this um, view on gender. You've both pushed back a bit on the traditional economic analysis of the gender wage gap. What is the traditional narrative on the gender wage gap? And what are your concerns or criticisms of what it might be, what we can go beyond when we're talking about those ideas? Who wants to, Jamie, you wanna go first? Sure, yeah. So most economic analyses of the gender wage gap are conducted in this way that intentionally abstracts from history and institutions. Um, So what you do in a good econometric analysis is you try to control to the greatest extent you can for everything that might confound 
outside of your primary variable of interest. And the primary variable of interest in this case is gender. Um, but when you live in a world where gender is correlated with having had a different history, with having had a different set of opportunities historically, um, with many places in the world maybe still actively facing a different set of constraints in terms of law and organizational policies. So when you, you know, control for all of these factors and you spit out a number and say, okay, this is uh, the difference in either salary or in participation of this gender that we can attribute just to the gender, you are leaving out all of those components that are actually still a function of gender, but they are correlated with the broader institutional framework, which you've kind of deliberately wiped out of your analysis. So I think the enduring impact of history, it gets back to what Rosie said earlier about the fact that yes, women are making these choices for themselves. So we're now at a moment in time where the choice as to which career and educational opportunities you want to pursue um, is a matter of free choice for women, at least in the United States and in a large part of the more developed world, not, you know, not in not in the whole world, of course. Um, but that doesn't mean that your choice set still isn't constrained by opportunities and barriers that you've faced in the past. So I, that's why I get, it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when people say that the gender wage gap doesn't exist in part for that reason. And in part because of the fact that even after you put all those controls in, it still does exist. So, you know, maybe it's only, 8% or 5% or 2 or 3%, depending on what data you look at, what kind of study you conduct. Um, but since when do 8 and 5 and 3% don't matter? Like there's no other circumstance in which we would think reducing the returns of an activity by 3% would not have a discouraging effect on people trying to go about that activity. Um, so yeah, I, I think the gen, you know, economics brings some complications to the analysis of the gender wage gap that maybe is conducted outside of economics, but like we also then introduce our own set of confusions in the way that we do the analysis and talk about the results. Yeah, I think we always talk about the results. As you said, it's the choices that men and women are making that leads to this different um, you know, the, the larger gender wage gap, they attribute to the choices that we've made. Um, and so, you know, what is influencing those choices, right? A big thing that influences the choices that women make are social norms about what is the expectation of how household labor is going to be divided, right? That's a huge impact on, you know, if you want to have kids and the expectation is that you're going to shoulder the majority of that responsibility, then that's certainly going to alter your choice to go, do I go to graduate school? Do I not go to graduate school? Um, do I work the late hours or do I not work the job with late hours? Do I work the job that has lots of travel? Uh, you know, those are the things, yes, they're choices, but I don't think a lot of economists spend enough time talking about what influences those choices. They just say, well, it's a choice and that's it. Yeah, and also, you know, we're, we're still kind of introducing 
burdens onto women's choices today, even through some of the ways that we try to tackle these problems. So like, even if your analysis of the situation is that women still are rewarded less or do still face greater obstacles in some ways, there are so many programs that are attempted to kind of ameliorate or limit the impact of that. But these programs often put the burden of their operation kind of on women. So, and, and I, I kind of don't know how to get around that. So I want women to get full consideration in hiring, but then that now means that you're already more limited supply of women in these industries are being asked to kind of put all their effort towards hiring or to serve on all of the committees to kind of pick up the active role in governance. So it kind of gets to this fact that there are always, there are always costs of institutional change. There are always secondary effects associated with top-down policy and that we just still have some experimenting and fumbling around to do to figure out how to get really full consideration and opportunity for women in the, you know, in high status professions and academia um, at the highest levels of, of management. Yeah, Rosie, you've looked at some of the gender quotas, particularly in other countries to try to get you know, they're, they're an attempt to remedy the issue of you might have more women in the workforce, but they're not at the highest levels of management or leadership. Um, you know, that sounds, it has really good intentions, uh, get more people in those spaces, uh, but you've been looking at how it works. Um, you know, could you tell us more about that? So I've been looking into, you know, the countries where they're often held up as the shining light of, you know, feminist ideals would be kind of the Nordic states, right? They have, they have all the things, they have the quotas, they have the paid maternity leave, they have, you know, the guarantee that you're going to be able to come back to the same job after you come off of your maternity leave. Um, and so on a lot of indexes of like gender equality, which this, we could talk about that at another point, but most of those indexes are measuring, you know, how many um, entitlement type of programs are embedded in the law that prioritize women, like quotas. Um, so it's really, if we look at the Nordic states, they haven't achieved the level of gender equality that you would think, right? If you're talking about women making it to management positions, like at best, maybe about 40% chance of making it to management position. It's higher in the United States and we don't have any of those things, right? And so it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, when they implemented gender quotas for corporate boards in like Italy, right, they did see some positive effects. They did see some benefits. Um, but when you dig a little bit deeper, uh, one of the reasons why um, there might've been positive effects is because Nepotism is pretty big deal in, in that set of rules there. And so maybe requiring hiring women forced you to look outside of your family for a bigger pool of talent and that it actually improved the way things were managed. Um, but if you, you know, it, it's really none of the gender quotas or what I would call gender equality mandates just more broadly, they're expensive and 
they it's not clear that they're accomplishing what they're intended to accomplish right and it's if a lot of the gender inequality that we see in labor market outcomes if a lot of it is coming from social norms and and expectations about the division of of household labor um then those aren't even addressing the cause, right? They're not addressing the cause. They are what I would call symptomatic treatment, right? It's trying to fix the symptoms, right? Putting an ice pack on my head to bring down my fever without trying to fix the disease that is causing the fever. Um, And they make women more expensive to hire in a lot of cases, right? And they also take off the table your ability ability to kind of negotiate around those arrangements, right? It presumes a particular type of preferences. It presumes that women want to have kids and want to have, you know, paid, a lot of women do want to have kids, but there's a lot of, and a growing number of women that don't. And so, uh, you know, do I get 10 weeks of paid leave? for another reason, because um, I look just, even if I don't want to have kids, I look just as expensive to hire as someone who does want to have kids. And so, you know, but I'm never going to get the paid time off that they'll get. Um, so it's just, it kind of, it doesn't necessarily accomplish what the goal is. If it did accomplish what the goal is, then we would see much more gender equality in the Nordic state than we do. Um, And then at the same time, it is locking in a very gendered set of social norms um, that maybe need to have some flexibility to change. I'm so glad you brought up this issue of trying to fix the wrong thing. Because I think like as economists, especially, there's sometimes a temptation to want to try to manipulate the outcomes. So we're concerned about these outcomes that we see in the world and there's this desire to correct those. But the way that you change social outcomes is by changing social processes. So simply like just paying attention to these quotas, the wages, kind of the outputs of the system It's like someone's dropped a lasagna on the floor and now like, let's try to clean it up by pushing it around with a broom. Like it's not, not going to work. You can't just push around what's already happened. You have to go back kind of to the beginning of the action and look at, okay, what components of this process made it so women didn't have kind of the full choice set. And if you can't find any, if women do have the full choice set and those, and there aren't those constraints and barriers, then we do at some point have to say, okay, like this was the outcome of choices and we're okay with, you know, the choices that people made, even if it doesn't lead to full parity. But I think, so I think like pulling that attention from the outcomes to the processes, that's also something that institutional economists can be and public choice economists can be really well suited to doing. And so much of the conversations about gender parity are really just focused on the outcomes. Um, Almost every measure of gender equality is focusing on 
um, either do we have these quotas and formal benefits for women codified into law or focused on do we have a quality of outcomes in these number of areas? So, yeah, I think that's the, the wrong way to be going about things for sure. Yeah, I think this also brings up the informal and formal tensions again too, right? Because you could imagine a quota where you actually get the outcome. So, you know, you can institute a quota and you never meet it, right? So we want 50% women as CEOs, but we never get there. We're at 40%. Or you could get to 50% and those women still don't have the voice that they might have if the, if it wasn't, if there wasn't a quota. So you could, you could be instituted at that level of a CEO and, or a partner of a firm and you are the one that they listen to the most, like they, the least. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting is, you know, this idea of kind of paid family leave, which could be for men or women, it brings kind of de-genderizes the, the benefits that you have but it doesn't necessarily degender the content of what happens in those, in those as well. Right. So, you know, if you have a baby uh, and you have to heal from it and, you know, figure out how to make it stay alive and do all of those things, it's probably really hard to actually get caught up on work or learn a new skill while you're on that break. Um, But for the person in the family that, also gets to take leave to help out that maybe doesn't have as many of those additional um, burdens or, or, you know, things that they're working on during that time, they might actually get to learn a new skill or work on research if you're in academia or do these things that might actually make you, um, when you get back into the workforce, you've uh, leveled up in a way where it, you might not be able to level up. Yeah, I know. Think about That's, oh, sorry. Oh yeah, go for it. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I forget who wrote the study, but there is a study on the impact of paid uh, family leave on the likelihood that you would get tenure as an academic. And, you know, it didn't really improve the odds that women would get tenure, but the men who were taking that paid paternal leave were really getting tenure, right? Because they're spending that time differently. So you can give people the time but you really can't control what happens when they are um, taking that time. What's going on? Yeah. Or, you know, we talk about this a lot between the three of us, but, you know, there's these kind of self-reported metrics on how much you share your household duties. And so that's increasing over time and probably actually is to some extent too. But once you get into the questions of how you spend your time, uh, there's a bit of a mismatch between being equal across if if it's a two gendered household and then, you know, women still actually doing more of the household work. Once you look into the details, Um, it makes me think of the pandemic too. Like the pandemic added all this uncertainty being at home, you know, is that are the burdens of, of working from home and dealing with these things shared the same way as well. The content of how we live our lives, even with these policies matters a lot. And so you know, it can sound really pessimistic, I guess, Um, you know, like these remedies aren't going to help. And so I guess maybe go back to Jamie and you framing this around social change. Social change is messy and not super quick. Um, You know, kind of what do you think of is important when thinking about the remedies 
to these issues, kind of what are the things we have to keep in mind to be optimistic um, when we're thinking about these ideas? Yeah, well, when uh, when you were both talking, it put me in mind of Claudia Golden's research, and she studied particular industries and particular organizations and the outcomes that people of different genders experience within those environments. So how um, easy is it for women to succeed in particular industries? And so she does a kind of institutions of the organization in the sense that she's looking at what are the particular features of a work environment that are going to make it easier for women to um, succeed and to be able to balance those inevitable burdens of motherhood with work if they so choose. And so she identifies, um, you know, flexibility in work, the way that the output of work is evaluated. Um, Are you being effectively judged based on how many hours you spend in the office and which hours you spend in the office? Or is there actually a good system for evaluating the content of your contributions, regardless of when you work on them and how much time you spend on them. You know, these kinds of institutional changes, I think they point to these, uh, you know, opportunity for a kind of polycentric approach to social change. So when we're talking about something as fundamental to the human experience as family and as gender roles, Um, There's going to be a lot of opportunity for harm, and it's going to be very fraught to try to kind of step in and impose widespread top-down regulations. But there's enormous opportunity for individual families, individual companies to be like social entrepreneurs and to change how are we going to decide division of labor in our household? Are we going to choose to to adopt different attitudes that make it um, okay for men to contribute more, you know, again, and we've been talking a lot about women because that's the, you know, the frame of a lot of our research, but men are subject to norms that impose undue burdens on them in different kinds of contexts. So there might still be today men who experience shaming as a result of, uh, you know, taking on too large of a role when it comes to childcare or house care. So these, I mean, these are not um, things that only women experience. These are things we all experience as a function of our gender. And or so I think about men who, um, who might want to get custody of their children and have a much harder time in the court system because they definitely prioritize women um, over men in that context, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, now we're at a point in history where there are like men who have given up their careers in order to support their, you know, their wives' professional advancement. So are we dealing with that on parity the same way we would deal with the situation where, you know, a woman who has sacrificed her career to help advance her husband, you know, they're both, um, you know, possible problems from an institutional perspective. But, But I think that like, that social entrepreneur, that norm entrepreneur, that ability to choose to live your life in a different way, that's kind of like the seed of change. And so then do people have around you have the opportunity to learn from what those entrepreneurs have done and also adopt it? And do you get that change spreading? I mean, this is about fundamentally 
the openness of institutions. Like you talked earlier, Rosie, about women who have to get permission from their husbands to do anything. That includes traveling internationally. So you have women who are literally forbidden from exiting political structures that are actively oppressing them. But like, that's a very extreme example, but also, you know, there are at all scales, these instances that we can find of opportunities to choose a different path. And like, what can we do to remove the barriers to people being able to choose those different paths, those different paths in terms of ways of living, ways of relating to each other, as well as the big questions like career education and where are you going to live and which political structures are you going to, to participate within and be bound by. So I think like really digging in and finding where are all those areas of areas of choice, what are all of the barriers that prevent people from acting on them? I mean, I think that's how we can maximize opportunity for social change. Absolutely. I often talk about how there's a lot of countries in the world that have specific regulations on not whether or not women can work, but the actual type of job that women can do, right? So for example, in Belarus, women are not allowed to work jobs that are dangerous or have them dealing with pesticides or harsh chemicals. Now, setting aside the fact that a lot of those restrictions are to protect women's reproductive capabilities, a lot of the, you can't work a job where you're lifting heavy things. Um, but let's say, you know, I'm a woman in Belarus, maybe I wouldn't want necessarily a job to work. You know, me personally, I have no desire to work at a job where I'd be using pesticides, right? But maybe that does represent some woman's best choice in terms of how to improve her life and you know that taking it's taken off the table like it's fairly easy I would think to just remove some of these restrictions um, because yeah maybe not a lot of women are made would make that choice but right now none of them can't um, so just you know it's pretty low hanging fruit from a policy reform standpoint, because a lot of those restrictions, it's not requiring resources, it's not requiring the government to do anything extra. It's actually requiring them to stop doing something, right? It might free up some valuable resources to tackle more important problems than whether or not I'm going to open up a pest control business. Yeah, I think one really important thing we can learn from history is that you know, these ways that women's choices are cut off are often offered in the name of their protection and that we really have to reject the temptation to decide for others what their best alternative is. You know, a lot of occupational regulation in the United States also was legally justified by the fact that women would have fewer children, and they would not raise them as well if they were on their feet too long in the factory. So it's this, it's this paternalist justification. It, interesting, we always call it paternalist and never maternalist, but um, this paternalist justification that we need to, you know, stop women from 
making the wrong choice for themselves. And we do this to people in all variety of contexts, but I think historically, sometimes it's maybe been a little bit easier socially to get away with that if you limit that paternalism to women's choices and children's choices. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, that temptation is just so strong. We see this all the time in, you know, we probably don't have time left to get into it in detail, but we see this all the time. If there is any work that has a sexual component. So like anything that falls within the very broad sex work family, there's this again, I think it's kind of paternalist to, to put this moralization and this presumption that there's no way that women could be voluntarily choosing this as their right path. And now there are definitely situations in the world where women are not voluntarily choosing that. And that is deeply wrong. Um, but there are many situations where women are you know, voluntarily choosing to participate in these type of activities. And it's just being looked down upon it for these other kind of like shadow moral reasons. We pretend it's not to protect their wombs, but it actually is under the surface. Yeah. I think, you know, I think we've gone through a wide. I feel like I've gone through a wide variety of feelings over this past uh, hour where, you know, we've talked about really radical change that's happened and also, you know, kind of the pessimistic um, view of what is taking a while. But I think, you know, I think thinking about gender in this way and being willing to dig into the details of informal and formal norms and, um, you know, legal institutions and economic opportunities gets at something I think that's really important and has a lot of lessons for, you know, not just women being able to participate in more, but, you know, that has outcomes for the rest of society as well. Um, obviously, anyone interested in this should read the work that the two of you have done, uh, journal articles, uh, Rosie's work on the Economic Freedom Index, um, lectures and videos that are out on your research. Is there any, um, uh, you know, we've, we've brought up a couple of people and their research over the past hour. Is there any um, kind of next readings that you would recommend to anyone who's listened to this and would want to dig into it more? Um, I would add uh, Victoria Bateman's book on the sex factor. I think that's fantastic. Um, and I haven't had a chance to read it yet because it just came in the mail a couple of days ago, but um, Claudia Golden has a brand new book out that I know is going to have phenomenal insights on this, on this subject. There's just no way it won't. Um, but yeah, B Bateman's The Sex Factor is a very institutional approach to some of these questions. And I think anybody who found this conversation interesting, um, like obviously I hope they'll read Rosie's work and maybe some of my stuff as well, but I they would definitely like that book too. Yeah, I mean, Golden is really always my go-to recommendation, Claudia Golden. She's, her work is amazing. Great. Well, thank you both so much for spending this time talking about these ideas. I feel like we could talk for a lot longer about all of this stuff. Um, uh, and uh, people can go learn more at all those places we just talked about. Um, so again, thank you. It was great talking with you. Yeah. Can I just say, I get so much value out of having this group of strong, intelligent, productive women to discuss these issues with. 
Um, and I just look forward to more and more women having the opportunity to choose this path in the future. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.